Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad it's cooled off a little in here. It was feeling like a Scandinavian sauna, as one of the, the helpers was suggesting, which I thought was not entirely appropriate given my title here. Freezing is what we should be thinking of. We should maybe take it outside. That's an option. Well, I thought I would begin with a prayer, if you'll indulge me. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. I typically begin classes with a prayer, um, and I, I'm this close to asking you guys to start taking notes so I can have a quiz after class. That will at least keep you awake, maybe, the threat, right? Um, I'm very happy to be talking with you today about something that doesn't get talked about enough, I don't think, and that is, uh, at least in the, the Tolkien canon, uh, and that is uh, this uh, collection called The Letters of Father Christmas. And, um, and so um, I'll begin. Today, I want to tell you a story. It's a Christmas story, but it's probably not the story you're expecting. And as I hope you'll see, that's kind of the point. When we're fighting a culture in which Christmas is reduced to a gift card, a silly sweater office party, a few minutes together on Christmas Day before everyone is back on his or her phone, and stuff, stuff, and more stuff under the plastic Christmas tree, it's getting more and more difficult to remember the wonder that is at the heart of Christmas. The amazing, surprising, undeserved miracle that is God becoming man and being born in a stable and laid in a manger. Part of the story I want to share is the story originally shared by Father Christmas in letters he composed every Christmas for over 20 years and sent to the four children of a professor of English language and philosophy, uh, sorry, and philology who taught at the University of Leeds and at Oxford, a professor by the name of Tolkien. Father Christmas's story is a story woven out of the threads of fairyland, the threads of the wondrous, the terrificalist freezing magics that astonish and jolt us from the ordinary, the banal, the commonplace of everyday life, and which may offer us a new path to belief, to gratitude, to love of and joy in the miracle of the nativity. Wait, terrificalist freezing magics? Are you wondering what on earth I'm talking about? Well, that's kind of the idea, wonder. Which brings me to the other part of the story I want to share. It's the story about the story, the story about a father's attempt through the story of Father Christmas to create that sense of wonder, which must be part of our Christmas experience every year our whole life long. So the story I will tell is really about the incredible gift that a loving father gave his four young children, the gift of a story, which is truly the gift of wonder. The home that serves as the setting of the Father Christmas story is decidedly not the typical home. It is marvelous, it is wondrous. This home is located at the North Pole, and in this home lives the warm Mary, and as we'll learn, very patient, Father Christmas. In case you didn't know, he lives in middle-class comfort in a roomy house perched on a cliff overlooking the pole itself, which is, of course, a giant white pole. 
And there he makes presents for the world's children with the help of Karhu, an accident-prone but earnest and at times heroic polar bear, whom Father Christmas calls with a flourish of creativity the North Polar Bear, or NPB. Karhu's two nephew polar bears also help with the work when they're not goofing off, that is, which means they don't help much. By the way, the word Karhu is the Finnish word for bear. But the story told by Father Christmas is not just the story of the, sh of the silly shenanigans of the polar bears. It's a story with plenty of adventure and excitement and surprises and heroism. It's a story about clever red and green elves and creepy impish goblins, which Father Christmas describes as very much like what rats are to you, only worse. It's a story about dastardly dragons and the sometimes surly, sometimes neighborly cave bear. It's about helpful red gnomes and a friendly snowman, who of, of course is the gardener at the North Pole, and about the many snow children playing in the snowy yard of Father Christmas. It's a story featuring the man in the moon who visits on occasion and who loves plum pudding and who once drank too much brandy, went to sleep, and then was gently shoved out of the way under the couch like your drunk uncle. And as I mentioned, it's a story about the terrificalist freezing magics, which is a term Father Christmas makes up to describe the weapons of light, the fireworks, that the man in the moon once used to get rid of some pesky dragons. This story is about the supply of Christmas crackers blowing up in the cellar. For the British, these are not edible crackers. They're the small noisemakers that people pull apart at Christmas time. Ask the person from London, I'm sure that will know. It's a story about Father Christmas's continuing battles with fierce weather, with the fiercer dragons and nasty goblins, and with time itself. Not surprising given the difficulties one is bound to encounter in attempting to make and deliver gifts to children around the globe in a single day. By the way, Father Christmas says that at his best, he can fill 1,000 stockings per minute, just in case you were wondering. It's a story of dark, dank caves dripping with mystery and about soaring mountain peaks glistening with fresh snow. This story is basically the amazing news of the North Pole, news of which Father Christmas, or which Father Christmas desired to share with the Tolkien children. In the margins of some of the letters, the North Polar Bear, Karhu, would insert comments in large, rune-like capital letters, and in longer postscripts, he would even try his own hand at relating the news of the North Pole, always using terrible grammar and spelling. An elf named Ilbereth, who became Father Christmas's secretary in later years, would also take a few turns at giving updates to the children. Mostly, however, the story was told in annual installments by Father Christmas himself, who always kept an eye, actually two eyes, whenever he could spare them, on those beloved Tolkien children living in England. He indicated in his letters that he kept tabs on the children through his messengers, who occasionally dropped by the Tolkien home unseen, and reported details from the lives of the family to Father Christmas himself. That's not how he knew what he knew. Okay. Of course, the creator of this version of Father Christmas, and thus of the letters, happens to be one of the greatest storytellers in history, J.R.R. Tolkien, whose books, including The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, continue to inspire readers to have courage and hope, even in the darkness, to recognize good food, a good song, and fellowship as real treasures and to wonder at the miracle, the magic in all creation, in leaves and trees and hills, in the lowliest of flowers, like king's foil, in the humblest of creatures, like hobbits. But even more, Tolkien's stories cause us to wonder at the indomitable power of heroic self-sacrifice, 
at the heart of which is caritas, the theological virtue of other-centered love. As we'll see, the Tolkienist sense of adventure and of the heroic power of love that animates his more well-known tales informs the Father Christmas letters as well. Indeed, one thing is clear in the letters. Father Christmas loves the Tolkien children with a father's love. Here's Tolkien at his desk in 1937. To understand this special gift Papa Tolkien gave his children, let's get to know him and them a little better, and then we'll get to know what uh, Tolkien's ideas about the truth and power of fairy tales are. And with those foundations in place, I hope we can truly appreciate the wonderful letters of Father Christmas, especially how they may inspire us today during this Advent and Christmas season. Truly, they are wonderful, as in full of wonders. Notably, Tolkien himself never really knew his own father, who died in South Africa when Tolkien was but three years old. Just before his father died, Tolkien and his mother Mabel and younger brother Hilary had already returned from South Africa to England, where they were waiting for his father to join them. As many of you probably know, in 1900, a few years after her husband's death, Tolkien's mother Mabel converted to Roman Catholicism. This occurred when young Ronald was eight years old, and at that point, Due to her family's objections to her conversion, Mabel and her children were cut off from the financial support they were receiving from her family. Afterwards, the boys and their mother lived in very strained financial circumstances, with his mother sick with diabetes and growing more ill all the time. His mother would die in a diabetic coma when Tolkien was 12. Given the difficult conditions in which she died, he would view her as a martyr for the faith. In 1963, he reflected, quote, I witnessed, half comprehending, the heroic sufferings and early death and extreme poverty of my mother who brought me into the church." Unquote. She was a loving mother who made great sacrifices for her boys, nourishing them in the faith. She initially homeschooled them, teaching them subjects like Latin and botany herself, but also allowed them to wander in their reading, for not all who wander are lost. I think she also encouraged them to wander in their reading as well. Ronald's own favorites included the Arthurian legends and the fantasy stories of George MacDonald, as well as the fairy tales of Andrew Lang. At King Edward's school in Birmingham, young Ronald became fascinated with the Middle English of, Can of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and then on his own he began to study Old English, Welsh, Finnish, and even Gothic. He also began to create his own languages, something he would do for the rest of his life. Importantly for Tolkien, a language necessitated a culture and a culture, a language, so that he needed to create whole worlds, mythologies, nations, histories, even family trees to support and nourish his languages. Thus, his eventual in invention of the Middle Earth Universe, or MEU, really served to support his interest in the languages he had created for the elves who would populate that universe. Interestingly, the letters of Father Christmas refer to a new language, Arctic, that is spoken by the North Polar Bear and Father Christmas, but more on that later. When their mother died, Ronald and his brother Hilary became wards of Father Francis Morgan, a dear family friend of whom Tolkien would say, quote, he had been a father to me more than most real fathers, unquote. Father Francis helped the young man to cope with his anger and grief at the death of his mother. As Tolkien would write, quote, I first learned charity and forgiveness from him, and the light of it pierced even the darkness out of which I came, unquote. As difficult as his childhood was, Tolkien's life wasn't all darkness. He met and fell in love with Edith Bratt, a fellow boarder, whom he would marry when he was 21. 
After serving with the Lancashire Fusiliers in the Great War, where he survived what he called the horrors and carnage of the Battle of the Somme, Tolkien would return to Edith and work at Oxford as a tutor and examiner. Their first son, John, was born in 1917. Then three more children would arrive as he and his family moved to the University of Leeds, then back to Oxford, with Tolkien always climbing up the academic ladder, but never sacrificing his children on the altar of professional advancement. Here he is with his children. Perhaps not surprisingly, given the hardships of his own childhood, Tolkien doted on his children and remained affectionate toward them his whole life. He would often kiss them as a greeting in public, even when they were adults. His daughter Priscilla would warmly remember her father's patience for his children. Quote, he was always there at lunch and at tea. We children were allowed to run in and out of his study at any time, so long as he wasn't actually teaching. He was very much involved with family life, and since we were often hard up, he had to write and work far into the night just to make extra money, unquote. His son Michael recollected that his father always took his childish comments and questions with complete seriousness. Here he is with his children. Tolkien just loved children. The last time his friend George Sayer saw him, very late in Tolkien's life, the Oxford Don was with some kids playing trains and saying to them, quote, I'm quoting, I'm Thomas the Tank Engine. Puff, puff, puff. <laughs> Thomas the Tank Engine. Okay. When they were young, Tolkien told his children stories, sometimes to entertain them during outings, but also as part of their bedtime ritual. As busy as Tolkien was as a young tutor and then later as a lecturer and finally a professor, constantly writing and grading uh, and taking extra work to pay the bills. Despite all of that, he was always making time to think up stories to tell his children. Many of the stories featuring complex plot arcs that would take days and weeks to get through. Of course, the story that would become The Hobbit and would start Tolkien on his path as a popular writer began as a private tale, originally told to and then written down for his children. Later manuscript versions were even typed up by his older children. His third child, Christopher, recalled being paid two pennies for every mistake he could find in the manuscript. <laughs> Apparently, Tolkien began to write down sections of the story when Christopher noticed some continuity problems. Here's Christopher and his father together. It's one of my favorite pictures. In the introduction to the 50th anniversary printing of The Hobbit, Christopher Tolkien wrote of his father, quote, he also remembered that I, then between four and five years old, was greatly concerned with petty consistency as the story unfolded, and that on one occasion I interrupted, last time you said Bilbo's front door was blue, and you said Thorin had a gold tassel on his hood, but you've just said that Bilbo's front door was green, and the tassel on Thorin's hood was silver at which point my father muttered, Dan the boy, <laughs> and then strode across the room to his desk to make a note. <laughs> Tolkien's life from his youth to his professional career as a philologist necessitated an immersion in the stories of the cultures that harbored the languages he studied, but Tolkien always tried to look beyond to the transcendent truths and symbolic value that the stories offered. What I thought I'd do with the next few pictures is just to look at a few of his illustrate of sorry, of uh, of his artworks that I find particularly beautiful, just to give you a sense of of how talented he was as an artist. So um, here's another one. Here's a third. 
Um, before we turn to consider in more detail the illustrations he made as part of the Father Christmas letters, I want you to see how talented he was. He's quite good. The illustrations he did for the Father Christmas letters, however, are not, are not of this quality. Of course, they're by Father Christmas himself, not Tolkien, right? <laughs> and they have a consistent style. To me, the illustrations of Father Christmas seem simpler and childlike, like the children for whom they were drawn. But the subjects are, of course, the fabulous, the marvelous, the wondrous, dancing elves and snowboys and polar bears. In his famous essay entitled On Fairy Stories, which was published in 1947, Tolkien writes that fairy stories always present an enchanted realm, whether, whether there are fairies in it or not. It's always a realm of marvels, of the fantastic. Further, Tolkien maintains that the world that is presented must maintain its own internal consistency and, as it were, play by the rules it establishes for itself. Sounds like a world where Christopher would, would be happy. If, for example, the bears in an enchanted land can talk, then it's not inconsistent to imagine that they can help with the organization and preparation of a massive undertaking, like giving toys to the children of every land. Thus, Tolkien argues, the fairy story and the world on which it depends function as a type of sub-creation, mirroring God's creation and possessing internal coherence. But Tolkien adds that each artistic sub-creation also offers an opportunity for the viewer or reader to gain new perspective on his own reality. The story told by Father Christmas in his letters combines the comfortable and the strange, the everyday and the world of fairy in such a way as to remind children that the fantastic is true in its way. For this sub-creation, the sub-creation of the North Pole has an internal consistency in unity. The fairy world may even be, in a sense, in a sense, more true than the everyday world, as the fairy world for Tolkien embodies and preserves and makes accessible deeper truths. For example, truths about love, and friendship, and sacrifice, and forgiveness. As the fairy world constantly amazes and surprises us, causing us to wonder, loosening up our understanding, our reasoned, logical approach to making sense of things. In fact, odd terms that Father Christmas uses, like terrificalist freezing magics, serve to do just that. These words act poetically to suggest rather than literally and logically to describe the good magic used by the man in the moon. The Father Christmas letters help children to wonder about the world. If it's a world in which Father Christmas really exists, then what a surprising and interesting world it is. And again, the wonder is the lasting gift for a child who reads these letters. Wonder is that state of being dazzled, surprised, amazed at our experience especially in our experience of the unexpected. Notably, though the letters elicit wonder not only by the sort of disruption of a conventional mode of understanding, I think they also do so by making the children part of the story. This is achieved by Tolkien's attempts to make the story real. His is an intense realism, an authenticity achieved by attention to minute details and by the whole idea of the letters as being real male. Real envelopes with what seem to be real stamps and postmarks coming from a real place and describing events as though they were real, and then as well recording the events in color illustrations as though to prove their reality. Of the need for internal co consistency and coherence in fairy stories, Tolkien writes, quote, it is at any rate essential to a genuine fairy story as distinct from the employment of this form for lesser or debased purposes that it should be presented as true. 
Since the fairy story deals with marvels, it cannot tolerate any frame or machinery suggesting that the whole framework in which they occur is a figment or illusion, unquote. The male is real. Indeed, the whole thing is a bit like what happens in the movie The Miracle on 34th Street, where the male proves Santa's existence. That's a movie about the importance of belief and trust, the existence of a reality beyond the material. And these letters of Father Christmas have a similar intention, but from a with a distinct difference, obviously. These are not letters to Santa. They are personal letters from his own hand, addressed specifically to John, Michael, Christopher, and Priscilla. And if you're one of those children, you can't get more real. You can't become more part of the story than that. And here is a close-up of the first envelope with the first letter in 1920. On December 22, 1920, something truly wonderful arrived for three-year-old John Tolkien, a boy who lived with his baby brother Michael and their parents, Ronald and Edith Tolkien, in a very modest flat in Oxford. There by the hearth, the lad found a unique envelope with an unusual stamp, and within a letter and an accompanying watercolor illustration, both created by Father Christmas himself. The envelope was postmarked from the North Pole, as you can see, and the address was written in a beautiful script. The stamp was the price of two kisses. Can you see that? <laughs> two kisses. Again, Tolkien, I like that. Again, Tolkien strove for authenticity in the letters, creating unique stamps and postmarks for every one of the envelopes. Here are some other uh, examples of stamps. Occasionally, the letters would just appear in the house by the hearth or on the mantelpiece, as though Father Christmas had dropped them off when he came through the chimney. But sometimes the postman himself would bring them with the mail. Uh, and I believe one time, uh, it, one actually ended up in the stocking delivered by, uh, by Father Christmas himself to Priscilla by putting it right down in her stocking. But Tolkien actually handed the postman the letters in advance. Uh, according to one of Tolkien's biographers, Humphrey Carpenter, the children once even found a snowy wet boot print placed conspicuously on the rug, indicating Father Christmas had definitely been there. Genuineness, truthfulness, and authenticity were hallmarks of the experience Tolkien intended for his children, for they needed to believe. And I think what they needed to believe was not so much that Father Christmas was real in the way their father was real, but ultimately what they needed to believe was that the love shown by Father Christmas made known to them the love that their father had and always would have for them. The love in the letters was what mattered most and what continues to matter, and you can see the love in the details. Here's the letter itself, the first letter. Very short compared with many of the others. Christmas House, North Pole, 1920. Dear John, I heard you ask Daddy what I was like and where I lived. I love that you begin with that kind of mystery. Where was he when he overheard me say that? You know? <laughs> I have drawn me and my house for you. Claiming, right, I, I did it for you and here it is. I did it myself. Take care of the picture. I am off just now to Oxford for Oxford with my bundle of toys, some for you. Hope I shall arrive in time. The snow is very thick at the North Pole tonight. Your loving Father Christmas. Father Christmas is there, abbreviated, you can see. Note the shaky, squiggly handwriting of Father Christmas. As he'll mention in a few letters, he's almost 2,000 years old. Eventually, he'll clarify that he's as old as the year, for example, 1,030 years old in 1930, which identifies him as representative of Christmas with the Nativity story. So it's not bad handwriting for someone that ancient of days. <coughs> Excuse me. By comparison, the North Polar Bear has his own very jagged, rune-like script, which we'll see later, and rough grammar, as I mentioned, and vocabulary. 
uh, and occasionally he'll insert comments. The Elf Secretary Ilbris flowing handwriting is as beautiful as you'd expect an Elf's handwriting to be. But all of this made the envelopes, the stamps, the letters, the illustrations as received artifacts take on a reality that was an important part of the experience. Let's look at the famous first illustration, a self-portrait of Father Christmas, me, you can see in the lower left-hand corner, me, as well as the picture of his home, okay? Uh, and that's in a lower panel there, you can see. It almost looks, reminds me of, I've got minarets almost around it. But uh, in the left, in the background, you can see that, that taller pole is the North Pole there. Okay. Note the, uh, the blowing snow, the snowy boots, the wind that's blowing from behind, blowing his, both the, the, the hood and his, uh, his, uh, the bottom of his coat and his beard all in the same direction. Um, and the dark colors in contrast with his bright red suit. It's really something. Beginning with this very humble first letter in 1920, Tolkien wrote a letter each Christmas for 23 years to his children, ending his correspondence in 1943 when Priscilla was 14. Some letters were single page, others extended well over six pages. The earliest and latest letters were the shortest, but the middle letters could be quite lengthy in their descriptions of events at the North Pole. Gradually, we learn more and more about him and his world, including his name, Nicholas. In fact, in the 1930 letter, Father Christmas mentions his own family, Except that he has run out of time, he says that he should like to write more, quote, about my green brother and my father, Grandfather Yule, and why we were both called Nicholas after the saint, whose day is December 6th, who used to give secret presents, sometimes throwing purses of money through the window, unquote. His family is a topic he doesn't return to in later letters, but one gets the sense that Tolkien's interest in the culture of the Northmen was influencing these references to his brother and father, so that he was connecting Father Christmas with the older Northern European pre-Christian tradition of Yule. The Green Brother may be a reference to a pagan tradition that had survived into Christian England with Christmas time images of a man draped in holly, ivy, and mistletoe, evergreen plants, and identified with Christmas merriment. For example, in his novella, A Christmas Carol, uh, published in 1843, Charles Dickens describes the ghost of Christmas present in just such a way. But Tolkien would stress that the pre-Christian echoes of a Yule log celebration or of a green man associated with winter merriment were but preparations for the advent of the true light in darkness, which is the Christ child, and with his saints, like Nicholas, who demonstrated Christ's law of love and self-gift. The children themselves wrote many letters to Father Christmas as well, and these would disappear from the mantelpiece where they were left for him. Father Christmas would often mention the letters from the children answering their specific questions about life at the North Pole, but, uh, but helping to cement authenticity uh, and to amaze the young readers, he would mention things that only someone who was keeping tabs on the Tolkien family would know. For example, Father Christmas would send well wishes to members of the Tolkien family who were ill, or he would mention certain details about family life that were not widely known, such as the presence of a visitor from Iceland. Or he would speak of the activities of an absent family member, for example, when one of the older children went away to school. Of course, Father Christmas would also reference specific Christmas presents that they'd asked for in their letters. The boys typically asked for trains, and Priscilla liked stuffed animals and had a growing family of teddy bears, which were of real interest to the polar bear friends of Father Christmas. <laughs> he also praised the children for everything from their improving penmanship to their kindness towards one another. And Father Christmas encouraged them in many ways to be virtuous, to share their toys and not think of themselves only.
during Christmas, but particularly to think of those less fortunate. As the years went on, what emerged was a sort of pen pal style correspondence. With each correspondent, the children in England and Father Christmas at the North Pole giving an annual update on the local goings-on. Sometimes the children would write two letters, the first left for, Chris, uh, for Father Christmas even as early as October, prompting Father Christmas to write two letters in response. The whole thing is a little like Christmas letters that, the Christmas letters that some folks use today in lieu of a Christmas card to keep acquaintances or friends in the loop, right, on family news. But of course, our news is nothing like that of Father Christmas, and his letters were always personalized. In our remaining time together, I thought we could look at some of that news, focusing on a selection of the more memorable moments and their accompanying illustrations, but not just the ongoing mayhem accidentally caused by the North Polar Bear. His escapades certainly lead us to states of wonder and amazement, but I thought we could also focus on the ways in which Father Christmas tries to nudge the children with gentle suggestions to encourage virtue to counteract the temptation to materialism and to promote the sympathy, compassion, and self-gift that are at the heart of Christmas. Here we have the illustration from 1925. In 1925, the hood of Father Christmas was swept by the wind to the top of the North Pole. There you can see the hood is in the, I don't know if it's, it's in his mouth, uh, it's, it's, but the, um, the North Polar Bear there who's falling, you can see has the hood, he got it. <laughs> Attempting to retrieve it, the North Polar Bear broke the pole and smashed into Father Christmas's house, destroying it, as you can see. Father Christmas then moved to a new home, which he called the Cliff House. In the bottom panel, you can see he's on his way to the Cliff House with his reindeer. You can also see that the North Pole has been kind of bandaged. It's been fixed there. There's a little red mark in the middle of it where it was put back together. The Tolkien family, by the way, moved a lot, even within Oxford. And I wonder if this was a way of saying to the kids that moving is sometimes part of life. Even Father Christmas has to move sometimes. In this letter, the North Polar Bear begins his practice of interrupting or interjecting comments in the margins or adding notes and postscripts, as I mentioned before. He writes on a small note in huge letters, excuse thick writing, I have a fat paw. <laughs> also in the 1925 letter, however, Father Christmas mentions that he is not very rich not very rich, as though to explain why he couldn't get the boys everything they wanted. John, the eldest, would have been eight in 1925. Two years later, in 1927, Father Christmas would continue that theme, quote, I get poorer and poorer. Still, I hope I have managed to bring you all something that you wanted, though not everything you asked for, unquote. What a humbling idea, a humbling idea and a good lesson. Father Christmas doesn't have the money to do all he'd like to do but he gives what he has and thus is always generous. Look what happened in 1926. Those are the northern lights, but they're exploding. They're gigantic. In 1926, the North Polar Bear accidentally set off the northern lights for two years in one go, which caused a massive fiery explosion that swept stars from the sky and sent the North Pole into relative darkness for two years and even caused the man in the moon to be blown out of the sky, break into four pieces, and fall into the snowy garden of Father Christmas. The frightened reindeer broke loose. You can see that happening in the panel in the middle there. They broke loose and ran away. Uh, but all's well that ends well. The man in the moon ate Christmas chocolates to mend himself. <laughs> chocolates can heal, can't they? Then climbed back into the sky and put the stars back into place. In 1928, the poor bear broke his leg. 
1928, Father Christmas described the North Polar Bear's tumble down the stairs where he slipped while trying to carry too many gifts in his arms. Father Christmas also told the children that he hopes they will share the presents he brought and, quote, not think they are absolutely only for the one whose stocking they were in, unquote. Hmm. Okay, here's another one. In 1929, here you see the North Polar Bear's own writing, right? It's authenticity. In 1929, Carhu added a note to the letter sent by Father Christmas. The note features Carhu's rune-like writing and bad grammar and spelling. I thought it interesting to include in part due to Carhu's reference to Arctic, the language Arctic, of which he gives the children a short sample sentence. Mara mesta anivela tiento yarato nea. It's right there at the very bottom. You can see it in the last line. The philologist Paul Hyde makes a good argument that this little sample of Arctic is a dialect or variant of Quenya, one of Tolkien's two most well-developed Elvish languages. There's very little crossover between the Middle Earth universe and the North Pole universe, but perhaps Tolkien couldn't help himself. He actually has Ilbereth, the secretary we'll meet in a little later, share a tiny bit of the Sindarin Elvish language at another point. And of course, Tolkien was working on those languages at this time, so it bled in a little bit. But basically, he was keeping them separate, the two universes, the two worlds separate. Here's a nice one of Father Christmas wrapping presents. In 1931, as the effects of the Great Depression continued throughout the world, Father Christmas begins his letter, quote, My dear children, I hope you will like the little things I've sent you. You seem to be most interested in railways just now, so I am sending you mostly things of that sort. I send as much love as ever, in fact, more. We have both, the old polar bear and I, enjoyed having so many nice letters from you and your pets. I think uh, Priscilla had her, her, um, her bears writing letters to Father Christmas as well. If you think we have not read them, you are wrong. But if you find that not many of the things that you have asked for have come, and not perhaps as many as sometimes, remember that this Christmas all over the world there are a terrible number of poor and starving people. I, and also my green brother, have had to do some collecting of food and clothes and toys, too, for the children whose fathers and mothers and friends cannot give them anything, sometimes not even dinner. I know yours won't forget you." Unquote. But there's a cause for gentle cheer in this, uh, this Christmas. Wherever the polar bear is, there's cause for cheer. Father Christmas states that the North Polar Bear, quote, has been lazy and sleepy and very slow over packing or any job except eating. He has enjoyed sampling and tasting the food parcels this year to see if they were fresh and good, he said. Polar Bear responds to this statement by adding in the margin, somebody has to, and I found stones in some of the currants. So he was really being helpful. Here's the first page, just the, part, the top part of the first page of the 1932 letter. It's one of the longest letters stretching over several pages. Father Christmas begins the letter, I don't know if you can, can see it well enough, quote, there is a lot to tell you. First of all, Merry Christmas. But there have been lots of adventures you will want to hear about. It all began with funny noises which started in the summer and got worse and worse. I was afraid an earthquake might happen." Unquote. It turns out that the funny noises were rumbling sounds caused by the goblins who are inveterate tunnelers and who tunneled into the storerooms and took presents. The goblins are really the enemies of Christmas and they come back year after year, sometimes uh, they're away for a few years, but then they inevitably come back. Father Christmas then sent for his friends the Red Gnomes who captured hundreds of the goblins and made them give the presents back. That leads us to another adventure 
that was related in 1932. Here we have Father Christmas in, the, in a cave in the middle. You can see in the middle panel. On the top panel, you can see uh, Oxford, and there's Father Christmas with all the reindeer flying in. I've been, I think that's from the north going into Oxford. Um, and then uh, in that second panel, you can just see it's very thin, but the North Pole is on the far right. Uh, and then that party at the bottom, you can see that's a rowdy St. Stephen's Day party. Uh, Tolkien and, and Father Christmas always refer to St. Stephen's Day as St. Stephen's Day and not as Boxing Day. You know, they're, they're always using the, uh, the feast days, um, and we'll have some, some more evidence of that later. Um, in 1932, Father Christmas tells of the incredible adventure of Karhu, the North Polar Bear, who wandered off, entered a cave, fell down and down and down and down into a deep cavern where he surprised some goblins. The goblins doused the lights and fled away after Karhu boxed them a bit. And afterwards, the polar bear was found by the cave bear, an old acquaintance of Father Christmas, who then brought Father Christmas to the newly discovered goblin caves. And here we see him looking around in the caves. You can see the bear is right behind him. Father Christmas, yes, has green pants on. Those are his favorite green pants. He also said that the goblins seem not to like his green pants. And so he, that's why he, 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 it's what he found out, and he likes to wear them whenever he might encounter the goblins. You can see on the other side, uh, on the left-hand side, there are two little impish black goblins there kind of creeping up. But you can also see some cave paintings there, right, on the sides of the caves. When light was provided, Father Christmas and Carhu were able to see graffiti drawings that the goblins had made on the caves, but there were some other older drawings there. And this is a collection of drawings that Father Christmas provided. I mean, it's like something new every year, like a, a Jack in the, or sorry, a, um, what's it called? Um, Cracker Jack, where you, you never knew what the prize was going to be. You know, there's something new, something fun. Um, so um, here we see a number of images, and he describes them this way, quote, some of them are very good, mostly of animals, and some are queer, and some are bad. And there are many strange marks, signs, and scribbles, some of which have a nasty look, and I am sure have something to do with black magic, unquote. The cave bear told him that the animals were put up by men, cavemen, who had long since disappeared, and that the goblins put up many of the nasty little images. You can see there's a mastodon, there's a bear, and uh, lots of, of things that you could imagine the cavemen putting up there. But those smaller little... Um, uh, humanoid forms, those were put up by the goblins, as we'll see. Okay, those nasty little images, the little black ones. Karhu would actually create a message for the Tolkien children encoded in a secret code he developed based on some of the goblin-like figures he found on the cave walls. Yes, why not? <laughs> there is the message. There it is, okay? Four years later, in 1936, Carhu would find and pass along the key that he created to help the children unlock the code. And there's the key. You can see what A is and what B is and what C is. You've got diphthongs. You've got everything right there. Um, Carhu's message reads, quote, uh, this is reading each line from top to bottom and left to right. I wish you, <coughs> excuse me, I wish you all a very happy Christmas and a splendid new year with lots of fun and good luck at school. You are getting so clever now, what with Latin and French and Greek, that you will easily read this and see much love from PB, from Polar Bear, unquote. The coded message was a fascinating challenge to include for the children. By the way, I found someone online who had actually developed the Polar Bear's goblin letters into a computer font that can be used to encode communications. Yes. 
<laughs> the time and effort put into this code speak volumes not only of Tolkien's own talent and enthusiasm for the languages and codes and riddles that he loved so much, but also of his attempt to harness that talent and enthusiasm toward bringing joy to his children. The adventure of the North Polar Bear with the goblins plainly has parallels with the dwarves and Bilbo's encounter with the goblins in the cave in the mountains in The Hobbit, and with Bilbo's subsequent tumble down into a deep cavern where he met Gollum. Tolkien was by this time actually writing up the story uh, that he had told and retold in various forms to his children orally since perhaps as late as the 1920s. The Hobbit would not be published until 1937, but it was plainly on his mind as he created the Father Christmas Letters in the early 30s. Here's the first page of the 1933 letter. Look how beautiful that script is. And it just went on and on and on. Uh, just like the illumination, it's just it's beautiful. Uh, 1933 letter begins, My dears, another Christmas. And I almost thought at one time in November there would not be one this year. Oh dear. There would be the 25th of December, of course, but nothing from your old great-great-etc. grandfather at the North Pole. Goblins. You can see goblins written there in black. Goblins. The worst attack we have had for centuries. Oh dear. Well, have no fear. The bear is here. <laughs> 1933 was a very difficult year for Father Christmas as the goblins mounted a massive night attack on All Saints Day. That's how he puts it. Father Christmas uses the feast days to mark time. Some of the goblins rode bats, with one even appearing at the bedroom window of Father Christmas. You can see in the lower panel, there's Father Christmas. If you looked really closely, you could see he has his eyes open and he's looking over at the window. In the upper right-hand corner, I think you can see the man in the moon, but the lower left-hand corner, there's a little face. Of course, it's black on black, so it's, it's really hard to see. But if, if you had this in your hand, I think you could see that there's a little face at the window scaring him, right? Um, the gnomes and the North Polar Bear went on the offensive with Carr, who, according to Father Christmas, quote, squeezing, squishing, trampling, boxing, and kicking goblins sky high and roaring like a zoo. And the goblins were yelling like engine whistles. He was splendid, unquote. This might echo Bjorn fighting goblins in the Battle of Five Armies, like a Viking berserker. The battle raged for a fortnight, but the good guys prevailed and were finally able to get back to work in all the presents and then have a big party, okay, as they usually did on St. Stephen's Day. By the way, 1933 was also the year in which Tolkien showed parts of the book that would be published as The Hobbit to his friend and colleague at Oxford, C.S. Lewis, who encouraged him to finish and publish the book. 1936, another fun year. Um, Yes, you can see there's a tub overflowing and the water's dripping down and poor Father Christmas is screaming at the ceiling there. All right. In 1936, Ulbereth the Elf introduced himself and began to tell of the goings-on on behalf of Father Christmas. He was very busy. The big event of the year was when the North Polar Bear went to sleep in the tub with both taps running. You can see hot and cold taps there running. And, uh, and he apparently had a good dream about seals he said, uh, to each his own. Um, apparently, uh, a bathtub-related flooding event happened to the Tolkien family, so this might have resonated with the children in a special way. Also, at the very bottom, you can see the North Polar Bear. By the way, I haven't commented on this yet, but are you guys surprised by how, how thin the North Polar Bear is? He's very thin. He looks like a, I don't know, a fox or something. He's very thin. Um, he won't always be that way. He's going, to be, he's going to be fatter later, as we'll see, but, uh, but very thin polar bear. 
Anywho, uh, he's teaching the red elves and the green elves this new system that he came up with that uh, makes things more efficient. Modernization. Um, apparently, it saved a lot of writing to assign numbers to the children, and those are the two numbers, actually, that are assigned to Christopher and Priscilla. Numbers 560783 and 784, respectively. Speaking of Priscilla, oops, bless you. Speaking of Priscilla, in 1938, uh, Father Christmas tried his hand at writing a poem. Um, he rhymed her name with the word pillow, which might work in the South. You could say Priscilla pillow, <laughs> but I'm not sure how well it worked in England. Carhu gave him a hard time for it. Um, he, he writes out in the side, bad rhyme, bad rhyme. That's beaten you. I would like to read some more, but uh, we're, we're running out of time, so I'm going to push on a little bit. Um, here in 1940, the polar bear dancing with penguins. In the letters for 1939 and 1940 with Europe at war, Father Christmas is short on supplies and on time, and he writes very short letters. In 1939, he says, I am very busy, and things are very difficult this year owing to this horrible war. Many of my messengers have never come back. Okay. It's really bad. But the penguins came from the South Pole to help him. Uh, Fifty of them came, and there's the polar bear dancing with their chiefs. Uh, and he's a lot fatter than he used to be. Um, and one thing I really like about this is that um, you see this image of peace at a time when the world was not enjoying peace at all. Um, and here we have the last, of the, uh, the last illustration that went with the last letter. Um, and uh, it's faded, but that is the world there. And you can just see um, on the top of the world, just to the right, a, a red pole, and then there's a south pole opposite. So he's included the pole. He's included his homes there, um, or his home, sorry. Um, but the north polar bear um, was able to save um, the um, uh, Father Christmas's house from a massive onslaught by goblins, one more, uh, and those wars seem to reflect, of course, the world wars there. Um, I'm going to have to wrap things up, though, so we have time for, um, uh, for questions and then for you guys to move on. As a conclusion, let me anticipate a possible question you might have. Why doesn't Tolkien mention Christ or the miracle of the nativity or the shepherds or the wise men or any of that in the letters of Father Christmas? Perhaps something in some of the letters even strikes us as more pagan than Christian. Is the only Christmassy thing in the letters the name Father Christmas? Well, if you're worried about it, I think Tolkien's Catholic bona fides are beyond question. But the letters are not a catechism, nor are they a recounting of the Christmas miracle. Indeed, if anything, they actually, in a sense, go further into the nativity than piously describing the visit of the shepherds to the baby Jesus, for example. The letters get at the heart of the Christmas miracle itself, which requires belief and wonder. Advent is a time of preparation, of preparing for the miracle, of waiting with wonder in our hearts. But what if we can't wonder anymore? What if we're so sunk in the material, in the everyday, that there's no room at the end of our hearts for the miracle that is the birth of Jesus? I think that in the 1920s, Tolkien could already see the Christmas miracle being diluted by modernism, commercialism, and materialism. Belief itself was at risk. And I'd argue it continues to be so. How can we believe in a miracle if we can't believe in anything except what can be measured and weighed or have some monetary value placed on it? But further, how can we believe at all if we can no longer wonder at anything? 
Again, wonder is that state of being dazzled, surprised, amazed at our experience, especially as we encounter the unexpected. If we can't be moved to wonder by what we see, how can we find room for belief for ascending the truth of something unseen? Chesterton wrote, quote, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Tolkien's letters help foster the wonder that is necessary for belief, including belief in the Christmas miracle. I think Tolkien wanted his children to wonder so that ultimately they could believe. Christians and all men of goodwill need to bolster and encourage wonder, for it is only with wonder that we might approach the miracle of the nativity and receive it as the divine gift, the miracle it is. And wonder can only help us in our faith. As the English Dominican Gerald Vann suggests, without wonder and reverence, we shall never learn the secret heart of things, unquote. I might also suggest that in a special way it is childlike wonder that may bring us to the Christ child. A child's humility before the miraculous is what is needed today more than ever. Think of the letters of Father Christmas in reference to another quotation by Chesterton. Quote, what was wonderful about childhood is that anything in it was a wonder. It was not merely a world full of miracles. It was a miraculous world, unquote. It still is. We need to see it as such, right? This Advent, as we prepare for the miraculous birth, let us behave, or sorry, believe like children believe. Maybe not behave like children. <laughs> believe like children believe, without any doubt, without any lingering questions, completely trusting in God our Father. Indeed, he so loved the world, he deigned to be born in piercing cold and placed in a manger. If we see nothing else in the letters of Father Christmas, we must see a father's love. And love, that wonder of wonders, maybe that's the real gift of the letters of Father Christmas. Thank you very much. Thank you.